Welcome to State of the State, the monthly roundup of policy and research for the state of Michigan, brought to you by the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University, Russ White, and our friends here at MSU Radio Studios. I'm Arnold Weinfeld, Associate Director for the Institute, and joining me today is my co-host, Institute Director Dr. Matt Grossman. Our guest today will be Dr. Peter Berg, Professor of Employment Relations and Director of the School of Human Resources and Labor Relations at Michigan State University. And of course, we'll be speaking with Dr. Berg about the UAW strike against the Big Three and its impact on the auto industry and labor relations in general. Well, Matt, certainly a lot's gone on since the last time we met. Uh, No shutdown, but it cost Kevin McCarthy his speakership. And now it seems as if Congress is uh, stuck in the mud. What's your take on all that? They uh, they're going to ever get this solved? I mean, Steve Galise thought he had enough votes to get out of the conference at least, and but he pulled out. He didn't even he didn't even really give it a try. No, fifteen votes for Steve Scalise. Well, we don't uh, have a real working majority uh, in the House of Representatives. We have a paper-thin Republican uh, majority uh, that does not carry over to rules votes and does not carry over. Uh, to the conference uh, selection as it has uh, in in previous years. So that means that even if this is resolved, uh, we don't necessarily have a stable working majority uh, for the Republicans uh, to put the items that they want on the floor uh, on the floor. Now, I do think there's maybe more of a plan from the right uh, than people uh, might think of. Um, Kevin McCarthy was actually to the left of the um, of the House median Republican, uh, whereas Steve Scalise is to the right. And Jim Jordan, uh, who appears to be the only candidate today, is to the right of 93 percent of House Republicans. So if they succeed in making him the Speaker of the House, that would be quite a coup uh, for a minority of a minority of the Republican caucus to impose their will uh, on uh, the House of Representatives as a whole. I'm not saying that they will, but I'm saying that's not exactly chaos. That is a plan from the right wing of the caucus uh, that at least has some chance to succeed. What do we make of all that? I mean, has this have we have we ever seen this uh, before in Congress, where a small majority of the, we'll say, the ruling party actually holds sway over the entire Congress? Well, we uh, have never seen the speaker deposed the way that the speaker was uh, deposed. Um, we've never seen this level of consternation about putting forward uh, the new speaker uh, either. Um, the there's still the basic uh, structure that they have a very small majority. And anytime you have a small majority, you have a few members that can make a difference. And now that uh, we've proven that a few members can take down the speaker, that incentivizes everyone else who has an agenda or has anything uh, to to step forward and disrupt uh, that process. So it's still born of that. But the Difficulty for the Republicans has always been a strong right wing and uh, no kind of moderate base that actually wants to ally with the opposing party. If there was one, uh, then, you know, there would be a chance to kind of push back against the right. And there still might be, I guess, but no sign so far. Now, the American public in general already had a dismal view uh, of 
Congress and the uh, political system in Washington, D.C. Certainly this is not going to do anything to better that view. What are people saying out there? What are you hearing? What are you reading? Are they just shrugging their shoulders as if, you know, no surprise, they're dysfunctional anyway? Well, they're not shrugging their shoulders, but they're mad at everyone. So I think Republicans in Congress, via the poll I saw yesterday from from CNN, had like 30 percent approval. But so did Democrats in Congress. And when asked to uh, evaluate the choices between the Republicans in Congress versus the Biden administration, there was actually more support for the Republicans in Congress. So uh, it if if depends who who the options are, people might uh, dislike all of the available options, uh, but that uh, gives room for uh, each side to to pursue what it wants. Uh, what's your view long term uh, re- regarding this? Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the uh, the, the slide in uh, trust that people have had in government? Certainly, this doesn't add to it. Are, is there a way out of this? Well, there's a lot of things that uh, should make it worse rather than better. So the media coverage that we see in Congress tends to make it worse. The incentives uh, that uh, individual members have uh, tend to move us down uh, toward a worse outcome. Obviously, if we don't have divided government, if the public were to give over control to one party, then the situation would be a little bit different. You tended to see when the Democrats had full control, approval of Congress go up among the segment uh, that of Democrats who uh, wanted Democratic control uh, and not go down any further among Republicans. So that, that would be the, the one thing that might make it better, but would only make it better for one part of the country. And I know that Dr. Ballard's not with us today, but certainly seems as if it's so far had little effect on the economy. The economy keeps churning along. Uh, Everybody keeps looking for this recession and soft landing piece. And I still keep hearing about that now in 24. It was supposed to happen sometime this year. It didn't happen this year. Now maybe in 24. What are are your thoughts about the impact such uh, a crisis in Congress can have uh, on the economy as a whole? Well, as you know, Wall Street always says, well, they'll find some way to resolve it. But they've been right. You know, they did uh, resolve the debt ceiling crisis. Uh, They did uh, resolve the the latest without a government shutdown. Obviously, we're doing it again in 40 days and then probably we'll do it again in January. Um, But so far, uh, the the smart money has been on, well, it's just going to be more of the same. Well, let's move uh, to our own state of Michigan for a little bit. the uh, word around uh, the state capitol is that uh, the legislature will be leaving early in November uh, to allow for certain legislation to take effect, uh, in particular uh, legislation that brings us a Democratic primary, presidential primary at the end of February. An exciting contest between Joe Biden and now only Marianne Williamson. Yeah, because Mr. Kennedy has uh, moved uh, to the independent side. Is, is, isn't that right? Yeah, that's, that's right. And also uh, that week, uh, there's a couple of local elections that could have an impact on the makeup of the state legislature as two House Democrats uh, in the state legislature are running for mayor um, and could both win, uh, which would certainly upset the balance uh, of power down to a tie, 54-54. Um, any, any expectations, uh, moving forward, uh, if, if that should happen, do you, do you think anything will get done here in the Michigan state legislature? 
Well, let's first say that a lot has already been done. Uh, I talked to someone who collects 50 state uh, data on policy changes who said that this will be right up there with the most changes from the right to the left of any state legislative session of the last 50 years already. In the country yes, or oh, wow. nationwide. Okay. So we uh, there has already been a lot of change. Uh, there's obviously a lot still on the plate. But even if the legislature were to go home now, it would still have been a historic session, especially for liberal policymaking in Michigan. Uh, Obviously, there's more uh, on the table, and, and just this week, they're still debating important legislation for Detroit and elsewhere, um, but uh, I, don't, I don't know that uh, the, the legislature tends to eat up the time that's available, uh, <laughs> and we have a lot more time available than, say, Texas, where they meet every two years uh, for four or five months, but they pack a lot into that uh, small time, and we've packed a lot into our time. We did indeed, and yes, you you mentioned issues currently before the state legislature, the uh, land value tax plan that uh, Mayor Duggan would like to see pass, um, implementation of uh, the uh, abortion uh, initiative as well, being held up essentially by by one state legis by one Democratic state legislator, and it do, it does thing seem like things are slowing down a little bit, wouldn't you say? Well, you do the stuff that you can do, uh, and then you get to the stuff that was a little harder uh, to, to get over the line, and that's where we are. And that could be part of the impetus for what you're hearing is that people are saying, well, more time is not necessarily going to equal more votes. Yes, one rumor I did hear uh, down at the state capitol this week is that uh, if those two uh, state house Democrats uh, win their elections— um, they may not come back until spring, until after the special elections are done. So that could be pretty interesting. Uh, I worked in the legislature during the last time it was tied at 55-54. This would make it 55-55. Uh, this would make it 54-54 at this point if the Democrats lost those two seats. So it can be done, um, and we'll see what happens if indeed those two uh, Democrat, state house Democrats do do win their, their election. Um, Still a lot of uh, other issues on the table, as you noted. One of them uh, we reviewed at our monthly public policy forum uh, this past week, and that is uh, talent uh, retention and attraction. Um, recent polling done by the Detroit Chamber of Commerce and Business Leaders for Michigan showed that uh, up to a third of uh, young people ages 18 to 29 have no plans to stay to stay here in Michigan. Any, well, they did not expect to stay. They did not expect to stay. Did we learn anything new uh, out, of that, out of that polling? Well, what was interesting is that the folks that are here now, when given the opportunity to leave, or the theoretical opportunity in the poll, to leave for California or Texas or Chicago, the vast majority did want to stay in Michigan. So of the people who are here, they're looking for job opportunities. They just don't necessarily expect that the best economic opportunities will uh, remain in Michigan uh, for them. Uh, even a surprising number liked the weather in Michigan, if they're already here. We tend to have the, the hardy folks that like uh, like uh, the, the Great Lakes uh, and don't mind the snow. Um, but I think one thing that was missing from our form was uh, how to get folks from other states right. to come here. If you look at the census data, it really isn't the case that we lose more college graduates or anyone else than any of our neighboring states. It's more the case that we don't gain as many people from other states, especially college graduates from other states, uh, as our neighboring states do. Uh, and it, it could be that those people 
people don't necessarily have the same positive impressions that the people who are already here do. I, I think that is a great point that you just made uh, because that is something that was a takeaway from there. People, the young people that are here, they, they'd like to stay here, most of them. Um, so it's not necessarily a question of retention. A lot of states are dealing with uh, retaining their own, their own talent. It's talent attraction that is, is really, really the issue here. I thought some of the more interesting uh, numbers out of that poll was how social issues are growing in importance amongst that age group. Uh, in particular, uh, 60% uh, feel that uh, gun-related policies are, is, are, are of interest and of importance. Nearly half uh, want to see LBGTQ rights. Um, certainly three-quarters thought that racial equality policies were important, and half were, were pro-choice abortion policies. So there does seem to be a bit of a move on some of these social issues uh, in, in this younger, younger generation that, that's coming up, and it might be of some importance moving forward. I was a little skeptical of that uh, data. Um, it is certainly true that young people are more liberal on social issues, but asking someone, you know, was this going to make you stay in the state? Um, it's too, it's a little easy to say, yes, um, this policy makes a difference uh, to me. If you look at the 50 state data and you try to associate any kind of set of policy changes with actual migration from state to state, you find zilch, no relationship whatsoever between policy of any kind uh, and uh, which, uh, way people are are moving uh, it tends to uh, have been a, a general move south and west uh, mainly with the weather um, some other differences having to do with international migration patterns but not a lot to do with state policy and uh, at the same time this week uh, the governor's grow Michigan council came out with their uh, work group recommendations uh, ahead of the uh, full report which is expected uh, in the next uh, several weeks and in pre-K through 12, in higher education, in jobs, talent, and people. And reading through some of these, there's really nothing new here that, that at least I saw, uh, funding the pre-K-12 system fully, equitably, and efficiently, uh, committing to the Michigan Education Guarantee, increasing high school graduate enrollment rates, two-year success rates, um, in community college, retain the track post grad. I mean, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of what we call now more than everism in this debate, <laughs> which just means that we have a new problem, population, and here are my solutions. They're the same solutions I was proposing before we were talking about population. Uh, Republicans think, oh well, it needs to attract business with tax cuts, and that's that that that's to address population. And Democrats think it's to increase education funding, but they already thought that we should increase education funding. So. Uh, it, it tends not to necessarily develop into a new agenda. Yeah, a, a lot of these, uh, having worked on attraction and retention of talent issues as well as uh, community and place-based issues over the last 20 years, a lot of these feel like Groundhog Day. I've seen these before. Um, I'll probably see them again until uh, someone decides they really need to be addressed in an appropriate policy manner. Yeah, we have a new slogan, though. What do you think of, you can you, you can, can in you, Michigan. You can make it in Michigan. You can make it in Michigan. Michigan yes. Yeah. 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 yeah that's, I don't, I, I think people are going to miss Tim Allen and the pure <laughs> Michigan ads myself. I wonder who's going to carry that message. <laughs> well, speaking of talent, uh, retention and attraction, uh, let's turn to uh, Dr. Berg to talk about uh, what's going on here in the state of Michigan and across the country. Uh, with the UAW strike against the big three. Uh, as I noted, Dr. Berg 
is a professor of employment relations here at MSU. He directs the School of Human Resources and Labor Relations and is a well-known and well-respected expert on those matters. Dr. Berg, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. What's the good news? What can you tell us? Well, to, I guess today I was learning that there are no new strike calls today. Right, we have good news today. So that, that is a good news. And what that means, it's unclear. I mean, they just they took the Ford plant and, and struck that. And sometimes you look at that as a signal of really trying to get push in Ford to come to an agreement. So the fact that there's nothing new today, could it be that we're getting close on some things and the UAW is feeling like the companies are coming closer to the demands where they could get a tentative agreement? Um, I think we're closer to the end than we are to the beginning, but it's really hard to predict how much longer this will go on. And Ford the other day, Ford just yesterday said that, you know, that's all that we can do. Um, what impact do you think uh, that announcement, that very public announcement, might have on negotiations moving forward? I, I think what what the company announces publicly sometimes may be different than what they're saying in bargaining. Um, you know, the cost of, I think, the UAW, by going after the, the pickup truck plant, was really trying to now exact some deeper pain into Ford, into that particular model. And so whether that encourages Ford to make some more concessions, I don't know. But a lot of the theatrics of bargaining from eat the rich to put a proposal in the garbage can are a lot of theatrics. And it can be very different than what you do at the table. Both sides seem to be doing this um, drip by drip approach. Um, the, the automakers on concessions coming out every few days and saying, OK, we'll give you this, we'll give you that. And on the other side, uh, the UAW, um, which typically over the years, if I'm correct, um, has targeted one company, this time targeted all three, but chose select plants to strike. That's pretty different. It was a different approach, yeah. I mean, this sort of targeted strike across the three companies was a new approach. I think it's been effective. It's been effective in... It gives the, the UAW a menu of plants to attack. So you can attack certain plants that may not be their most popular models of the companies but still are important. Then you go to distribution centers and you try to attack some of the supply issues. And then you hold in reserve some of the more profitable plants as sort of an end strategy where you start to say, well, you know, we can always strike those if we're not seeing progress. And so they've been ratcheting up the pressure over time as they pick more sites. And public approval, you know, from the Gallup polling showing people support, 75% support the workers in this strike is important, I think, for the UAW as well in its messaging. So I think that approach has been effective. Now, this approach really works in manufacturing, I think, better than in other industries where you have these sort of add-on effects from suppliers that come to assembly plants which can also hurt relationships with companies and suppliers as a result of that. But it's very different, say, with a writer's strike, you know, where you've got to get everybody off, mm. out. There isn't a targeted approach there. So I think they've, the strategy they've chose has worked so far. So they've already uh, won some concessions, and it looks like uh, they're likely to, to win more uh, and incorporate some of these more uh, newer electric uh, battery manufacturing plants under the, the agreement, um, at least uh, with GM. 
is that uh, is that in some ways uh, you know arguing over the the deck chair placement on the on the Titanic and these companies are going to lose to Tesla in the end uh, or uh, is there a chance that this bargaining actually leads to, to bargaining in in other parts of the industry that are not currently under UAW placement. I think the UAW is trying to raise the floor, take those wages out of competition, include those other battery plants. And they're trying to extend their reach within the future EV industry world. Now, let's say they get some of those. Let's say they get that same deal in Ford and Stellantis. So that's going to raise those wages where the companies may have thought, well, we're going to get some wage differentials with these plants, but now they're under the master agreement. What anytime you get an agreement, that's a reaction or that that's an action that you take. And then there's the reaction to that agreement. And companies will then react with maybe we shift costs away from labor going forward to reduce that dependency. We have to invest more in how we're going to improve productivity in those facilities to justify the higher wage and benefit costs. Because they're not going to get down to Tesla wages. That isn't the strategy. The strategy then has to be productivity improvement, efficiency, more capital. And that means that the UAW needs to, I think, transition after this round of bargaining from this sort of very heavy adversarial get what we can to now that we're in this, how are we going to work together to achieve those efficiencies so that we all survive? Because the threat is that EV employment is going to be less Mm -hmm. than internal combustion Mm -hmm. employment. And that means fewer UAW members. So great we won, you know, all these big increases, but the long term may see membership decline if if they don't come together and work together after this agreement to find a way to make the industry successful for everyone. So your comment about a new floor then makes sense. They're looking ahead and saying seeing that as well. I mean, I'm sure that they see that there's gonna be less employment, less union members moving forward. So they're, I, they're trying to set a new floor for that era. I think the UAW is, and the, and the mm-hmm. companies are well aware of that. Mm-hmm. The, the interesting thing, too, and there's an article today in the Wall Street Journal, but it's not new data, that real wages of manu- motor vehicle manufacturing workers has been declining in real terms for decades, mm-hmm. for a long time. And so the premium gap of working in autos that used to be around in 2005 or 8 is no longer. So that ability of the auto companies to to cream the good talent, the high-skilled workers saying, we're paying premium wages, come into our industry. Well, that incentive's gone away. And so they are competing now in much with much broader manufacturing, not the elite employers, and so, you know, this move of trying to raise wages, they may be able to justify saying, okay, we're going to try to get a, a higher skilled worker as a result of this, depending on what we need going forward. Well, I, you know, I always grew up with the impression that those workers could afford the products they were building. And as you just noted, and my understanding is today, many of them can't afford the products that they're building now. Is that, is that right? Well, yeah. I mean, with the, the temporary workers that they employ, with the tiered wage system, the entry wages, you know, at the $17 range, more so than those at the top tier, which are in the 30 range, 
yeah, it's hard. It's hard to say, well, we're building Cadillacs. I'm making $17 an hour. Well, mm-hmm. You're not buying the Cadillac. Mm-hmm. And even with some of the incentives. Yep. But um, so that, I think, has led to some of this average wage decline in the industry. So the despite all the, the news uh, this, this summer uh, and this fall, you know, uh, private sector unionization is on just a long-term decline in the U.S. Is there a chance that uh, there, this is kind of a spur uh, to new mobilization, uh, or, or is this kind of a, a one-off uh, for the industries that are already well unionized? I think we're seeing a lot of labor activism. We're seeing more strike action um, because workers right now are in a position of power <clears throat> with a labor market tight. There's still growth in the economy. There's some inflation that works to their advantage as well. You have a, a favorable National Labor Relations Board. You have a, a favorable administration that supports unionization so that workers are in a position of power and they're exercising that. So the question, though, about union density and membership density is about how many union members in the labor market. Well, the labor market continues to grow. But getting members and getting people under collective agreements remains a very difficult thing to do in the United States. You have to go workplace by workplace. You have to get a, a vote, a majority vote of the workers in that workplace. It takes a long period of time, several months. And employers are able to campaign with great freedom against the workplace uh, unionizing effort. So the bar of actually organizing, and I think it's still about 25%, 30% of places where unions win elections, they never get a first contract. So there's that attrition out of there. You've won the election, but you can't get an agreement. And the reason you can't is because the employer will often delay, say, I can't meet, it's really difficult, just sort of stall and stall, and eventually the gas tank runs out. And so given that it's very difficult to win representation, it's hard then to keep your membership growing at the pace that the labor market grows. And so density is constantly, membership density is constantly being pushed downward as a result of that. And so despite this activism, we don't see changes or big changes where you've seen sort of steady union densities in the public sector where there's less competition, Mm -hmm. less of this anti-union action on the part of employers because they're public facing. Um, But in the private sector, we still see that. What's happened is that unions then have started to fund social movements outside of the whole bargaining process as a way to advocate for worker rights. Such as what particular Fight for 15, the wages. Let's get a living Mm -hmm. wage in this community. Mm -hmm. Let's support immigrant rights. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's start a worker center that advises immigrant workers on their legal rights in employment. That's not an agreement. That's Mm -hmm. not collective bargaining. That is simply helping and providing information to people to advocate for themselves. But it's a way to support worker rights. I'd also say there's another dynamic that's happening in that I see it among my students even. The view of unions as unions are out there fighting for social justice and civil rights. 
that's a view of a lot of young people because they mm. see organizing efforts in immigrant communities among people of color in industries where there are people who are poor. That's very different than 20 years ago, where unions were a special economic. interest of largely male domination who only cared about their own economic interests. Mm -hmm. The UAW is not that kind of union that's out there necessarily being viewed that way, but you can see by the favorability of their action, there's a positive view of the UAW. They just came off a huge corruption scandal. Mm -hmm. So there is a sense that the public is seeing unions differently, and whether that leads then to change in some way or more interest in voting for a union, I'd say for density numbers really to move, we'd need a change in labor law to change the way we allow for representation. Well, and also, the you mentioned density, and I'm thinking, well, manufacturing's declining. Um, the number of workers we use in manufacturing, that created quite a bit of density. Density in the labor force is now in the service sector, um, and that's why the push toward Amazon. But unless unions are able, and correct me if I'm wrong, unless unions are able to target large corporations or large fields where there are a lot of workers, like in Amazon across the country, organizing Starbucks ain't going to get it done. No. I mean, you organize a coffee shop, it makes good press. But, but you know, give the example of Amazon. You have to organize warehouse by warehouse. You can't go to Amazon and say, all your warehouses mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in this country we want under one agreement. Is that different than in other countries? You keep saying in this that, country. That is very different. I mean, the U.S. is unique in that there is no – unions have no constitutional right to exist in the United States. They only exist because people vote for them. And it's out of individual choice that unions then have rights. Um, they're, they're statutory rights. That's different than in other countries where unions are seen as organizations that are supported either constitutionally or through some basic right. I can't, other than Canada, there aren't elections to win representation. Representation is either forced upon employers because we have the people here who are our members and you're going to bargain with us. I don't have to hold an election. Mm -hmm. I don't have to win anything to do that. So this idea, and it's very uniquely American, that we want everybody should have the choice of whether they want to be represented or not. So it's a choice model. So what that means is you have to, you, in order to do that, you have to get approval by the National Labor Relations Board to say, well, what workers will be voting? Called a bargaining unit. What workers will actually be included in this contract? And they tend to set those units small, not big. They're very unlikely to approve. All Amazon workers in the country will be under one agreement. They'll say, well, they're very different. California, New Jersey, this and that. No, it should be very local. And that has been the tradition for a long, long time. So, you know, if you want to get Walmart to agree to a set of conditions, we'll go Walmart store to Walmart store. Under that model, it's very difficult to win. Even it's not just Starbucks, but mm -hmm. even if you have a warehouse with a couple of thousand workers to to win that way. In in France, they will actually extend agreements. You will have an agreement in one country or company and the government will say, "Well, you know, that's in warehousing here. We're going to extend that agreement by fiat to these other warehouses in another place." 
And so unions benefit tremendously by those actions in, in coverage. But it, it's different, obviously, in the U.S. Very interesting. Very insightful. Uh, wish we had more time, but uh, we don't. Um, but certainly appreciate your perspective and knowledge on this issue, Dr. Berg. Thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Matt, any other, any other thoughts as we close? No, thank you. Lots, lots to uh, see in the future on the political side, but also on the bargaining side. It seems like uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, important decisions for Michigan are about to be made. Well, that's all the time we have on this edition of State of the State. My thanks again to Russ White and the staff here at MSU Radio Studios for their support of this program. Join us again next month on State of the State.